Glad to see you all here. There's, there's plenty of seats up front. There's some on the sidebar. There's, there's lots of seats up here. Um, youth, you guys are staying in the service. My apologies again. Um, Pastor Steve sent out a text yesterday about uh, 10 o'clock saying that he was just hit with the flu and he would not be able to be here on Sunday. So um, the word was put out and um, my... I, I was the one who pulled the tag to come up and t- teach today and be here. So, um, you know, give me a little grace for having less than 23 hours to study and prepare. But, um, man, it, first service was really powerful. God worked really mightily just through some amazing, some amazing things I get to share with you today. But um, I've been thinking a lot about legacy recently. You know, that, that kind of the family legacy that you leave behind and... and um, one of my, the legacies that I want to leave behind is, it, and I have it on my cell phone, it says to, to glorify God and for, for, for others. You know, I, I, I want my life not just to be about myself. I want to, I want to glorify God because that's, that's, what, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here to do is to, to bring glory to God, bring weight to him, but then also to, to point others to the same. And... Um, had a chance yesterday to go out to one of my favorite places on the Central Coast, and that's uh, Wasna. And I was there out there with some friends, and they were taking me around the property where they were on. And, and uh, we ran, ran through an, a, a redwood grove out there, and they were telling me that their grandpa had planted that redwood grove 20, when he was 20 years old. And now that these beautiful, full, fully matured redwood trees and this beautiful grove, he's like, yeah, I got married down in there to his wife, and it was just beautiful thing about his legacy, the grandpa and the grandparents, and, and the legacy that their, that their children enjoyed, that their grandchildren enjoyed, and now their great-grandchildren were enjoying. I got to bring my daughter out there, and they're riding motorcycles, and, you know, going through the riverbeds. It was just, it was just a great time, because I look at my grandpa, and my grandpa didn't leave me that legacy. My grandpa was a little bit of a, a grump. That was the kind of legacy that he left by. <laughs> mind. Uh, and so, you know, my uh, aunts and uncles, my mom and dad, they always, they had the reverse legacy. They're like, don't be like grandpa. You know, when, when you get old, don't be old and grumpy. But, but along with that legacy, the family legacy, you know, we, that's, God, God created, God designed the family and to be a family unit. Uh, one man, one woman together in holy matrimony and then to, to have children and to have that godly offspring. And that is what the world is pushing against today in our culture. Um, before we jump into the message, I just, I just want to let you know about an assembly bill that's uh, being pushed forward. It's uh, Assembly Bill 957, and it's uh, Family Law Gender Identity. This is straight off their website. Um, it was put forth February 14th by Senator Weiner. And, uh, and uh, it, it was revised the 13th of this month. And this is what it says. This is straight from the government website, just so, you know, I'm not strawmanning any, anything. But he says, this, this bill will require the court to strongly consider that uh, affirming the minor's gender identity is the best interest of the child if a non-consenting parent objects to a name change or conform to the minor's gender identity. This bill will require a court when determining the best interest of the child to also consider a parent's affirmation of the gender, child's gender identity. So that's, that's scary because what they're saying is that uh, you know, parents have no right 
that God has no right to say what a child is and male or female, but now it's left up to the decision of that child who's still forming and um, that the possibility of that child being taken away from a family because they choose not to go along with, it, with the child's choice. So that's uh, Assembly Bill 957. Um, we'll, we'll give you opportunity to write your centers and other ways to just vo- vocalize. This is, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. So, um, man, what, the, what a crazy world that we live in. What a crazy world that we live in. And I think it's, it's crazy because we, the farther we, we've moved away from the Bible, the farther that our culture has pushed God out of our schools, out of the public sphere, the more and more darkness and the more just chaos ensues. And it used to be that you could go up on the street and t- tell them, hey, Jesus died for your sin, and they know who Jesus is, and they know the implications of that. But for more and more in our culture, that's, that's just not the way it is. You tell somebody that Jesus died for their sins, and that makes no sense to them because they say, well, who is this Jesus, and why does a person dying on the cross 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me and my life now? Because what do I owe to this God, and what, I, don't, I don't have sins I, I just have my DNA that tells me how to do and what to do, and I just dance to my own DNA, and that's, everything's going to be okay. And that's, so that's very opposed to say that Jesus died for your sins. That's not really good news to them. That doesn't bother a lot of people. That's because we've forgotten the Genesis 1 through 11 narrative. And so with that, when we say, hey, when we want to share with somebody the gospel, what are we sharing with them? Well, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 15, where we're going to find that where, where Paul writes, this is the gospel, all right? What is the gospel? So 1 Corinthians 15 is where we'll be, we'll be at. I'm sorry, didn't have a chance to get some verses up here, so we're just going to be, uh, I'm going to be encouraging you to flip open your Bible and, and, and be there. Um, so what is the gospel? Love 1 Corinthians 15. This is where it lays it out uh, plain and clear. Let's pray before we read and jump in. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we believe that there's an absolute standard of truth, Lord. We believe that, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. So we, we look to you, Lord, to lead and guide us, Lord. We look to you to be our cornerstone. We look to you to be the one that we build upon our lives. So, Lord, this morning, Lord, just... Uh, Speak to us clearly, Lord. Help us to put our faith and our trust in you, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second service is a little, always a little, a little fun. I, I feel like a little more light has been lifted off to first service. So, um, man, what a, what a powerful morning. Okay, so 1 Corinthians for, uh, verse 1. This is what Paul says. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is telling them, this is the gospel that I preached to you while I was with you. This is the gospel that you received. But also, more than that, this is the gospel in which you stand. Because the gospel is not just one of those things where you believe in the gospel, you're saved from your sins, and you just kind of go on day-to-day life. No, the gospel is what we do day by day. 
That Jesus died, died on a cross for our sins once and for all. So once you're saved, it doesn't mean that you now live a perfect life or, or, or without sin. No, you can, we, can, we continue to sin because of our fallen nature, but we go back to the gospel and say, okay, I need a savior. Oh yeah, confess my sins, repentance, and turn to God for that. So the gospel is something that we stand on every day. Verse three says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So here's gonna give the gospel. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So the gospel makes clear that that there was a substitutionary, that Christ was a substitutionary death. Death, burial, and resurrection. And that means that Jesus had a body. Jesus had a body. Death, burial, and resurrection. It also means that the Messiah, that Jesus, he died for our sins. And he was a, a one who was able to do that for us. We realize that we are sinners and that we continue to miss the mark of even our own pathway, our own desires, the things that we want to do, we miss those marks daily, and more than that, we miss the marks that God set for us, so because we've missed that mark, we need a Savior that's outside, that's perfect, so in Christ, we find that He is the one that, is, that alone can pay for our sins, and that, that's what He did, He came to die for our sins, according to the scriptures, and He was buried, and He was buried, right, Jesus had a body, he was buried. His body was put in the ground. And that is, that's in opposition of the Gnostics during that time that wanted to say, well, Jesus came in to do all these spiritual things. And was Jesus really, you know, really that human in, in was he really God in humanity? And they would, they would say, no, he was just a spirit. And so because of that, the gospel stands in opposition to that. Jesus had a body and he was buried Then it says that he rose again on the third day. The statement that we will look at this morning is it says according to scriptures. That Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to scriptures. So where in the scriptures does it say that the Messiah would die be buried, and then rise again on the third day. And that's where the fun part begins. Where does it say that in Scripture? Well, the first thing that probably is going to pop in your head is Jonah, right? Is that one of the first ones that pop, pops in the head? He, he was in the belly of the well for three days. So let's go to the prophet Jonah. Jesus even referenced that. He said, you know, to this, in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11, he says, you know, the one sign I'm going to give to this this wicked and and adulterous generation is the sign of Jonah, that he was in the belly of the well three days and three nights. So if you go back to the book of Jonah in the Minor Prophets, verse 17 of chapter 1 says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So if you know your, your history, your Bible history, I don't like saying stories because stories implies that it's a fairy tale. 
And I don't believe this is a fairy tale. I don't believe it's just kind of mystical. No, I believe this actually happened. I believe that Jonah was rebelling against God. God had told him to go to this, the land of Nineveh and to go preach the gospel there, preach the message there, bring his words there. And Jonah rebelled. And so Jonah went the opposite direction. Getting on a ship, he thought he would sail to Tarshish, which was the opposite side of the map that he knew. And in getting in that boat, they began to sail, but then instantly the storm came upon them and Jonah knew that that storm was there because of him, even though he was sleeping. And then he woke up and they were throwing everything overboard and Jonah realizes, okay, this storm is here for me. So he has them throw him out. Of course, the second he's thrown out, it's peace. But then it's not so peaceful for Jonah because the fish comes and swallows him. It says that he was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. That shows Jonah's resolve, right? I am not going there. I mean, you imagine what the first five, ten minutes of, of being in this like slippery, stinky, swall- like fish. I, I would think he would, re- he would call out right away to the Lord. Lord, I'm sorry. Okay. But no, he, t- he takes three days and three nights until he cries out to the Lord and repents. I, think that's, I, I, hope, I hope I don't stay in my sin and rebellion that long. Three days and three nights. Interesting, over the time, fishermen have often um, come across fish, large, large fish that have swallowed people or swallowed things. And what, 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 what comes out of that is that after being in, this, in, the, in the belly or in, this, in that stomach acid for that long, things became, became bleached. So there Jonah is, three days, three nights, every, every bit of melanin that he's had in his skin has been bleached out. His hair is probably bleached white. His eyebrows, everything's just bleached white. And he repents and God has the fish, you know, spit him out. He shows up on the beach of Nineveh, bleached white. His clothes probably tattered and bleached as well. And he begins to proclaim, you know, 40 days in Nineveh burns. Why do they believe him? Because they worshiped Dagon, the fish god. Their priest had these fish hats that they wore on their head. And so out comes this man out of a fish and begins to proclaim the gospel. And they're like, this is a message from God. We're going to listen to it. And so the, so the nation has changed. But it doesn't say anywhere in the book of Jonah that this is what the Messiah would do. Three days and three nights. Jesus said this, that, that was a sign of what I'll give. But if you read the book of Jonah, it has nothing implies that this is what the Messiah is going to do. Okay, so God begins to hide these mysteries throughout scripture, and it's for a reason. We go back even further, back to a psalm that David wrote, and that, there's, a, there's an implication there, and it's found in Psalms chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16, David's crying out to the Lord. He's looking at God for the, the final victory. And in verse, Psalm 16, verse 9, it says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. He says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. And Sheol was a place, the boat of the dead. You'll not leave my soul in Sheol, David cries. He says, Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or undergo corruption. You will show me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when David's speaking about himself, you'll not leave my place. You'll not leave me in that place of, of, of the abode of the dead in Sheol. 
And that's what we know that Jesus emptied. He, he, when Jesus died on the cross, his body was buried, his soul went down to Sheol, and he, he took those captives on the paradise, and he took them free. And so David was one of those that was freed from the captivity of death because of Jesus' death and burial. And he was taken from Sheol. But he says this in 10, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The implication is that Jesus or that the Messiah wouldn't stay in the ground long enough for his body to undergo corruption. In the Jewish mindset, four days was the day that the, that the corruption began to sink in, right? When Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb on the fourth day, and he says, roll back the stone, they're like, no, 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 Jesus, he stinketh. That's King James. He stinketh. And he calls him out instead. And so for four days, so, so Jesus was in the grave, it says, for three days and three nights. So the Holy One would not see corruption. Interesting how David could be, you know, talking about himself and then all of a sudden mystery, in this little mystery hidden, hides a prophecy of the, of the coming Messiah that was overlooked, right? It was overlooked. The disciples didn't think that Jesus was gonna die. The disciples were waiting for Jesus to be king, like, like, let's, like the, let's go. They did not see that was the pathway for Jesus. But there's an even stranger story, and it's hidden in a story of a or, a, or a historical account of a father and his son, and that's found in Genesis 22. Genesis 22, we find a lot of parallels between our heavenly father and his son, and Abraham and his son, Isaac. Genesis 22, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Now take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place for which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Notice that, the third day. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go up yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, Man, crazy. Let's go up in the mountain. Son, I'm going to lay this wood on your back as you climb the mountain. Sounds familiar to a story later on. And he took a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham and said to his father, he said, my father. And he said, here I am, son. He said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now they came to the place where God had told them, and Abraham built an, an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretched out the hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on this, on this lad, nor do anything. 
For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, to me. Then he looked at his eyes, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. And so as you look at this, what, what are they doing? Well, God had told Abraham, and Abraham, without missing a beat, had said, okay, yes, Lord, I will obey. I will take my son, my one and only son, and I'll go and take it as an offering. So the next morning, he rises up early, gathers the guys, and they, they take a three-day journey. So it was the first night, a three-day journey, until they see the mountain afar off. And then he says to the other young men, you stay here, the two of us, we're going we're gonna to go up, and then we're going to come back. So what is the picture there? What is the type? The type is the son would be, uh, the son was dead, was reckoned dead by Abraham for those three days and three nights. If this is what God called me to do, this is what I'm gonna do, my son will die. But he knew that there would be a resurrection because he said, we're gonna go up, my son will be offered as a burnt offering, and God will make a way because we are coming back because every promise flows through this, this promised son. And so for three days and three nights, he reckons his son is dead. I think that's phenomenal because it speaks of a substitutionary death. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. On that cross, when, when Christ was being crucified, he's, his last words were, Tetelestai. His last word, I should say, Tetelestai. And that meant paid in full, it is finished. What beautiful words. Two weeks ago, um, first service, uh, Pastor Steve felt just the Lord putting on his heart to pray for those struggling with cancer in our church. Um, Perry, who comes here first service, and he, he raised his hand for the church to pray for him. And then uh, Dave Ross back here, he, pray, he, he lifted his hand for prayer as well. And the church gathered around, and, and I, I was there, and I laid hands on Dave Ross, and others laid hands on, on Perry. And we just prayed that God would heal them. And because of that, Perry and Dave connected for the first time. And Perry's been going through some stuff as well, learning on his own cancer journey. And Dave has been on the cancer journey a lot longer. And his doctors had given him a notice of, hey, you know, like, you're cancer, you're cancer free. Your cancer your cancer's gone. And so Dave has been encouraging Perry, and they've connected. And Perry said, man, I've got this this PET scan that I just don't know how I'm going to pay for. And Dave uh, the blessings, uh, the just overflow of his heart. He said, hey, I want to, Perry, I want to pay that for you. And so uh, found out the place that Perry was going was gonna to be going and getting his PET scan. And so he went ahead. He brought $1,500 cash to pay for Perry's PET scan. And he gets to the, the doctor's place, and they say, sorry, we don't take cash. This is, this is Friday. Friday, we don't, sorry, we don't take cash. So, okay, so Dave goes back to the, to the, the bank. He gets a cashier's check and goes back and gives and, and, and pays in full for this procedure for Perry to go through that Perry couldn't pay for himself. That night, 
Dave passed away. Friday night, Dave passed away. In his sleep, next to his wife. Think of the legacy that would have been different had he said, well, I'll deal with that tomorrow. But no, he felt burning on his heart like, I want to do this. God has called me to this. And so he went and just did it. And that night, the Lord took him home. He is free of cancer. I shared that first service, and um, there's a man named Aaron that's been coming to our church. His, family, his family's been coming to church. His family's been dragging him to church. And after service, one of, one of his um, family members grabbed me and said, that, she said he was really good friends with Dave. He didn't know that he'd passed away. Can you come pray for him? And I went over there and I began talking with him and he said, I just got an email from Dave on Friday saying, you need to trust in Jesus. You, like, you, you're, you need to put your faith in him. And, and he just expounded on that. He said, hey, I want to talk to you more about this. Like, please, like, just encouraging everyone in his life to, like, trust in Jesus. And so, second after first service, I got to lead Aaron to the Lord. He says, I don't want to wait another day because I don't know if I'll fall asleep tonight and not wake up. And so he gave his life to the Lord and it was a, just incredible. I mean, talk about tears. I'm trying not to tear up right now, but it was powerful. Because he believed, and I took him to this passage of scripture. I said, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures? And then he was buried and he rose again. He said, yes, I do, I do. There was no prayer required because he simply said Jesus is Lord and he believed in his heart this truth and that was, he, was a, he is a new creation. It was amazing to see that weight lifted and that just God's spirit infuse him. But how do we know that we're not just, this isn't all just happenstance? You see, we need a substitutionary death. That's what we yearn for. There's a book that, uh, my youth group has been going through uh, recently. It's called uh, The Story of Reality by Greg Kokel. It's, he, he subtitles it, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything imp- That Happens in Between. Uh, it's, it's a great book. It's got me and the students thinking. And uh, I just want to read a few sentences or a few paragraphs from, from the book to you guys. But it talks about this substitutionary death, that there was one, the Christ, who had to pay for our sins. It says that Jesus... Oh, sorry, backing up a little bit. It says that Jesus was born to die. That's the rescue story. Jesus said things during his lifetime like, um, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He said the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Jesus said, I lay down my life so that others may take, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Lastly, he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Greg Kogel says, I want want you to think carefully at Jesus' last statement because there are three questions that we must answer to answer, to understand his meaning. The first is, what is a ransom? 
Well, ransom is a price paid to purchase a hostage or a slave. A ransom buys a body. Second, whose body does Jesus buy with the ransom? Well, he buys those who are held hostage. He pays the price to purchase sinners, rebels, and slaves. Finally, what price will he pay? Jesus will buy bodies by surrendering his own body. A body prepared for me, it said, and he will sacrifice himself to save others. So Jesus came to, to the earth to save sinners. The statement is so common to our ears, it's easy to miss its significance. Save means to rescue from imminent danger. Jesus came to rescue us because we were in danger. What was that danger? What was Jesus rescuing us from? Here's the answer. Jesus did not come to rescue us from our ignorance or our poverty or our oppressors or even from ourselves. Jesus came to rescue us from the Father. Think of that. Jesus came to rescue us from the Father. Remember, the king is angry. He is the one who's offended. He is the one who's owed. He is the sovereign we have rebelled against, the father we have disobeyed, the friend we have betrayed. And that is a dangerous place for us to be. Jesus said, do not fear the body, those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but be rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Later in the story, we, he says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He says, that's the bad news. And it's very bad news. Yet with the bad news, the good news is not good. Here it is. The father has mounted a rescue operation and there has been an invasion, that's what C.S. Lewis called it, an invasion that God came down in a body prepared for me. Jesus did a lot of deeds, but there are two particular things which Jesus did that were vital to the rescue. First, Jesus lived a life that we should live but did not because we're, we're rebels. Second, Jesus made the trade. He took his perfect life and he traded it for our rotten lives. And that's Jesus alone that did that. There's no other religion on the, wor on the world that says that God came down to tell uh, somebody um, that worships Allah that God, that Allah would come down as a human flesh would just be utter blasphemy to them. That, that would make no sense. Buddha never came down from heaven to earth. No other religion can do that. God stepped out of heaven and dwelt among us, a body prepared for me, and said to the Father, take me instead. And that was the trade. That was the trade. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say that after these things happened, after Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, it says, and he was seen by Cephas, then the 12, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. He said, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now sleep, we know, is the euphemism for death, Right? So 500 people plus the disciples had seen the risen Savior Jesus. And when this was written, you could go and talk to eyewitnesses that this was an actual event. They were eyewitnesses of that, and you can go and falsify their claim. You, would, you, can, you can go find John or Bob or, or, or Sally, like whoever, all those people who saw the risen Christ after his death, the very public death on the cross, you can go and talk to them. 
is what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, don't just believe my word. Go and talk to them. There's over, there's, there, was, there were 500 of them, but now you know, a majority, uh, part of that has fallen asleep, but they're still there to be, I, to be eyewitnesses, accounts of what seeing Jesus as the risen Savior. So many of these things are just kept in plain sight, right? Death, burial, resurrection, the Messiah would have to go to. That's the mystery of the Bible. I hope you, I hope you are encouraged to like read and study and, and dig into the Bible because it's amazing. All these mysteries that were hidden in the Old Testament that we get to be partakers of and be mystery, like the, the, the mystery of the church that was hidden for ages, but now it's revealed to us. And, and, and now we see how those things come to pass in Ephesians chapter three. But why were they hidden in the first place? Because we have an enemy. An enemy that's seen, but also unseen. In 1 Corinthians 2, it says, however we speak wisdom among those who are mature, not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak of the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For if they had not known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had it been so clear in Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah would have to die on a cross as it be pierced for our sins, for our transgressions, had it been so clear, they would not have put him on a cross. But yet, they, but yet Jesus, Revelation would say, was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. This was God's rescue plan all along. And so our, our duty then is to not have to do anything but to simply believe and to trust and to put the full weight of our lives on that. Later in the book, in the next, in the next chapter, on, on the chapter on, on trust, he's talking about the placement of our faith. He says faith requires belief, but it requires more than that. It requires action. It requires active trust. Greg Kokel makes the claim. He said, the sad fact is that every Sunday churches are filled with quote-unquote believers who are not Christians. There's nothing defective about their doctrine, yet they're still completely disconnected from God. They know about Jesus, they ascend to Jesus, but they've never trusted in Jesus. And that is evident from the way they live their lives. Even, the story, even in the story, many believed after this fashion, but they never trusted. Judas comes to mind. We think of Dave, who trusting in Jesus, said, you know what, I, I, God has put this on my heart today to go pay, it, pay, for, and pay it in full for Perry. And he did that. Had he waited a day, it wouldn't have never happened. But that was put on his heart. He sent out, apparently he was, a, he was a man of many emails. A man of many emails who encouraged his emails, others to trust and put their full weight in Jesus. And if, as, as, I've, as I've been studying more on the culture, there's a, there's a George Barna who, who does research, research through the Cultural Research Center out of Arizona uh, Christian I think I spoke a few weeks or a number of months ago about a different, the, the, 
percentage of Christian pastors that possess a biblical worldview. And according to George Barna, only 37% of Christian pastors hold to a biblical worldview. Uh, Youth pastors, it's 12%. I'm trying, I'm trying. But I found, I finally, he finally released his seven kind of just pillars of his biblical worldview. And so let me read those to you. Believe in God is omniscient, omnipotent, perfect, and just, and he is the creator and eternal ruler of the world. That's one. Two, realizing that all humans are basically good, sorry, skipped a knot, realizing that all humans are not basically good. Everyone, including you, is a sinner. That's the pillar number two. Number three is what gets me. Knowing Jesus Christ is the only means to salvation through our confession of sin and reliance on his forgiveness. Jesus is the only way. Number four, believing the Bible to be true, relevant, and reliable words of God that serve as a moral guide. Five, accepting the uh, uh, existence of an absolute moral truth. Six, acknowledging your purpose in life, knowing, loving, and serving with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the seventh is understanding genuine success in life, and that is to be consistent consistently obedience to God. That third one, knowing Jesus is the only means to salvation. See, the world has a lot of faith. We put our faith in different things. Some will put their faith in Allah. Someone will put their faith in the, in the works of Buddha. Faith for the Christian means that Jesus is the only way. There was one more section I wanted to read from this book about the placement of our faith. See, he, he wants us to exercise trust, but he wants us to show it what, what our, what it's important what we're putting our trust in. He said, pretend for a moment you're a diabetic on the verge of a diabetic coma. Pretend you also, also that I present you with a hypodermic syringe and a small vial of what I tell you is insulin. Would you trust me to give you an injection to save your life? Well, the illustration shows a clear contrast between belief and active trust. He says you already believe that the insulin can give you relief, but you remain in danger until you take the step of faith and actively entrust yourself to my care. So I expect you might take me up on that offer, right? Somebody has that life-saving potion. Yes, you believe it can save you, but you have to allow that to be injected into your body. He said, if you, however, if you did take me up on my, my offer, you would be dead. Here's why. With all the sincerity of your childlike trust could not change the fact that the, what was in the vial in my illustration did not contain insulin, but saline. You had both belief and faith to be sure, but you would be dead nonetheless. Now that you know the trick, let me ask you the same question. Can a person be saved by faith? I think you now know the correct answer. That's no. Faith cannot save anyone, not even a Christian. A Muslim suicide bombers overflow with authentic faith, but it does them no good. Trust can be misplaced, as it often is. 
A man who's gonna go walk on the ice can believe that, the wa- that that ice is thick enough for him to walk on with all the most sincerity that he has, but if that ice is thin and he's gonna fall right through. Now you have to have an unshakable faith in something that turns, if, if you have an unshakable faith in something that turns out to be false, then you have an unshakable delusion and the icy waters will soon get you. That's why Jesus saves through faith. And he calls us to reason and evidence. That's why he gives evidence of the eyewitnesses. That's why we have the evidence of scripture. That's why we have the evidence of prophecy. That's why we have evidence of history and archaeology. All these things that we put our faith not in, but we put our faith on Jesus because we can do that by reasonably assessing and our faith then trusts. In one sense, he says, then Christianity is not based on faith at all. Rather, it is based on a person we put our faith in. It was amazing to see Aaron take that step of faith this morning and say, yes, I fully trust in Jesus. I fully trust in Jesus. Sleep is a funny thing. Have you ever really thought about sleep? Or this, have you ever brushed your, brushed your teeth with your opposite hand, your other hand that you're not used to? When you begin to think, like, have you ever tried, like, I normally I brush my teeth with my right hand, and it's, the, it, it's, and it's normal. I can just, in my sleep, I could probably brush my teeth. But if you, put, if you try to brush your teeth with your other hand, your left hand, it feels really odd and strange. And so sometimes when we look at something that we do daily, and we kind of take a step back, and we realize how strange it is. Sleep is one of those strange things. Like you, you get really tired throughout the day and it gets dark and dim and then you get in bed, you place the covers over you and then you kind of go dead to the world. Unless you have kids who wake you up throughout the night. <laughs> but sleep, just sleep is this, like you go into this, like where do you go when you're sleeping? It's just this weird thing. Well, as adults, we know that most of the time when we go to sleep, we wake up, Right? Dave went to sleep, but he woke up in a a new reality. He woke up dancing at the feet of Jesus, cancer-free. But as adults, we know most of the time we're going to go to sleep and we're going to wake up the next morning. Kids Kids are not. There's a point where a kid transitions into, like, beginning to think about sleep. And I've seen this with my daughters. They begin, like, really, like, like, no, I don't want to go to sleep. What, you know? They kind of become cognizant that sleep is a strange thing until they get used to it again. But it's, it's this strange thing, and that's, that's where we place our weight, that to sleep, to fall asleep in this world, or to die, is to, is to be resurrected with Jesus. Dave today is more alive than he's ever been. Dave has a body with Jesus. Dave is with my parents. There's our hope that because Jesus was the first fruits of death, that we can hold to that same hope. So if you have not placed your trust in Jesus, if you have not believed in him as your Lord and Savior, confessing your sins to him, this may be the morning like Aaron to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, 
who died on that Roman cross, that he carried up the hill Golgotha nearly 2,000 years ago. And it was very bad news for him, Lord, but it's very good news for us. The ability to believe in that you sent a rescuer to save us from our sins who was able and willing to save us, Lord. Lord, we lift up Dave's family, Lord, who's just reeling from the loss, Lord. Oh, Lord, may his emails continue to resound, Lord. May his words and his commitment to you, Jesus, as his Lord and Savior, continue to affect lives, Lord, as it did this morning at first. Thank you for those saints that have gone before us, Lord, who have fallen asleep in this world and woken up to never fall asleep again. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.